gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, go to the dispatch.com to become a paid member of the Dispatch community. You can get the uh, midweek epistle, the, the Wednesday G file. You can get all of David French's uh, stuff. You can get all of uh, Scott Lincecum's stuff. Uh, you can participate more fully in all of our community chats and live events and streaming things. And you can become a, just a, a better, more well-rounded person, which, you know, we should all strive to be. Okay. So, uh, continuing with the tradition of getting first time guests on during the pandemic, uh, that you can only really do by remote. We have one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and I mean that pretty literally, uh, I, I got to know him for years doing, uh, national review conferences and events, and we would spend a lot of time together. And, um, I have stories about the guy, which I probably should not share, um, all flattering to him to be sure. Uh, we have Bing West and Bing, uh, I highly recommend if you want to get a sense of his full credentials, uh, just check out his Wikipedia page. Uh, he's a very impressive guy. Um, as a New Yorker, I sometimes let my biases against people with, uh, uh Massachusetts accents get the better of me. Um, and you forget that he is like a wildly educated and accomplished person who worked in the Reagan administration, who, um, wrote some of the most seminal books on, uh, military strategy of the last 50 years. And is also just a mensch and a wonderful guy and a veteran and the author of a brand new novel, which I've already admitted to him. I have not had a chance to read yet. It's, uh, because of the, uh, life. Um, but I'm looking forward to reading it. The Last Platoon. Bing, it's great to see you again. It's been a while. Thanks for coming on The Remnant. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jonah. Um, so you've written, as I indicated in the little introduction, you've written a bunch of very serious books over the years. Um, uh, what made you decide to do a novel? Well, because after 20 years of going to Iraq and Afghanistan and embedding with the troops and comparing it to when I fought in Vietnam, I realized to, to really tell the truth about that war, I had to stand back for a moment and ask, what is combat all about? And write it from a point of view that would interest people. And per combat, especially face-to-face -face combat, is the ultimate mystery story. So I wrote this book as a mystery story. And that the reason it's a mystery is because the stakes in personal combat is death. Either you die or the other guy dies. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you abstract back from that, you have to say, well, well what's going on here? How, do, how did you ever get into a position where you're, you're playing for your life? And there are, so I tried to tell from four different points of view what happened in Afghanistan. What happens when you take a small group of soldiers, Marines, and CIA agents, and you put them into southern Afghanistan, and they have a tiny little mission to do. But that mission goes all the way back up to the White House because there has to be a chain of command. So you're telling the story from the point of view, here's this captain. And he's sent out there, and he knows he's only going to be there for a week to protect a base. And then he comes back home, and hopefully he'll be promoted. And at the same time, when he gets there, he runs into those who want to kill him. And why do they want to kill him? Why does the Taliban want? What are their goals? What's the Taliban all about when you're suddenly put into that situation? And who's telling them what to do? So I tell the story from four points of view. I tell it from the point of view of those who are fighting on the ground for their lives and killing other people, both from the Taliban perspective and from the Marine and CIA perspective. And then I abstract out and indicate what happens in the chain of command on either side, because the Taliban are being directed by people in Pakistan and in Iran, and we're being directed by our military chain of command that is in Tampa, Florida, 
and they're being directed by the White House. Mm -hmm. So I try to interweave this as a metaphor for why we fought for 20 years and could not succeed. All right. So we'll come back. I guess I want to ask you about fiction writing, which is something I'm, I'm interested in for all sorts of reasons. But you sort of set up the, the natural follow-up question there is, what is, not as a novelist, but as a guy who has a very deep history and knowledge and has actually seen combat in Afghanistan, um, as well as a lot of other places, what is your answer to why we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years and, and haven't been able to, to close the books on that place? Well, as I point out, as, as the novel unfolds, when you're dealing with the Afghans, especially out in the countryside, you're dealing with an illiterate tribe that is hurtling headlong into the ninth century. <laughs> and we went over there saying that we we're going to win their hearts and minds and make a democracy of them. So the, the, the mission was flawed from the first day. And that's what drove me bananas because I had spent years in Vietnam and written a couple of books where I had a combined action unit in Vietnam that consisted of Marines and Vietnamese. But they knew what they were fighting for and you could deal with them. In Afghanistan, we're dealing with tribes and the tribes are getting rich from the opium that becomes sold throughout the, the world. Southern Afghanistan, where I put these Marines and CIA team, they provide 90% of the heroin for the entire world. Mm -hmm. These farmers are rich because they're working to grow drugs under the protection of the Taliban. And we, our, our president and our general said, we want you to go in there and persuade these tribes that they shouldn't be rich. They shouldn't be growing gr drugs. They shouldn't be doing the heroin. They shouldn't be dealing with the Taliban, who are their sons. I mean, the, the mission, the mission of winning them over to our side was impossible from the first day. And so as, as the book unfolds, I hope that the reader begins to say, what the heck? Why did we ever send them down there to try to do that? So, you know. I, I was at events with you. I read you in um, in the early years of the Afghan war and after 9-11 and all of that. Um, are you saying that the, the, the mission to win hearts and minds and nation build and all of that was wrong? I, I know that you've been consistent on basically that point for a very long time. But is your position also that we shouldn't have gone into Afghanistan at all after 9-11? Not at all. No, the, that's entirely different. That We went into Afghanistan because this group called the Taliban, who are Islamist terrorists, had gotten together with al-Qaeda, allowed al-Qaeda to use Afghanistan as their sanctuary, and al-Qaeda had killed 3,000 civilians in New York City. We went in first and foremost to destroy al-Qaeda, but we failed. The interesting thing right from the start, which flabbergasted me, was that we didn't use the troops that we had under General Mattis was there, and he had 5,000 Marines and commandos in southern Afghanistan. We knew that al-Qaeda was in a group of mountains called Tora Bora, but the general in charge of the entire war never used the Marines, never used the, the commandos that were there. Instead, he sent in some Afghans to try to kill al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda just decamped and went into Pakistan. In the first three months of the war, I thought we had lost the war because we didn't destroy al-Qaeda. By... We could have gone right after them into Afghanistan, and the Pakistanis wouldn't have done a thing up in those mountains and finished al-Qaeda and then said, that's it, we're getting out. Instead, after al-Qaeda fled into Pakistan, President Bush, whom I admire as a decent man, but not as a good strategist, President Bush, because he believes deeply in religion, he believes deeply in God, he said, 
America owed freedom to the Afghan people. No, we didn't. He confused evangelical religion with strategy. And so he said, we're going to stay and build a democratic nation out of these tribes. That's where we went off the rails way back in 2003. And I've been going there ever since with the troops. And I I get along all right with the generals, but it's they know that I've been consistent in saying this mission was just wrong. And Mm -hmm. so in the book, I try to, in the novel, I try to indicate what happens when you take our Marines and our CIA and you put them in these situations. And the Taliban, they want to have the money from the drugs. They're fighting for their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And the farmers are aligned with them. So you get into a bizarre situation that I try to explain as the as the novel goes along. Um, I mean, so is one of the reasons they do it as a novel because given the nature of the sort of just the politics of the military, <clears throat> never mind the politics of the politics, you can't you you get too caught up in not being able to name names and all and that garbage and 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 crossing different lines but if you do it in fiction you can actually be more honest about things cuz you don't have to concern yourself with that kind of stuff no no i wrote it as a novel because the first thing in life is we're all interested in other people mm-hmm. i wrote it as a novel because i wanted to put in some real life characters put them into tough situations where there's there's no win and see what they do. Mm. And and any novelist, of course, will tell you that once you get in there with the characters, the characters run away and they do what they're going to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but but in the end, the question became for these men, are you there for your own ambition and promotion, or are you there for your duty? When you know if you do your duty, there's nothing more than just the fact that you've done what you believe you have to do. And basically for that, I I went all the way back to Augustine. And this is what Augustine had to say. And this is the message out of the book in the end. In doing what we ought, we deserve no praise because it is our duty. And so in the end, if you're a corporal, if you're a captain, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you're into this fight, and there'll be no rewards for you. They're, you're not going to win this war. The only thing you have in the end is your own conscience. And whether you become calculating, as some people do, to ensure they get promoted, etc., or whether you just do your duty knowing, knowing there'll be no reward for it. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's, that's the toughest, toughest thing of all when you're gambling with your own life. Yeah. So. When, I mean, you embedded with a Marine unit in, in Afghanistan and wrote a book about it a while back. Um, uh, and I always remember being, so for listeners who don't know, uh, Bing and I got to know each other because we used to go on National Review cruises a lot. And um, at I don't want to give away your age, but obviously you fought in Vietnam, so you're older than me and all that kind of stuff you were in better shape on these cruises than, than I was in my twenties. Um, and every day you'd go running and all that kind of stuff. And you actually carried a pack and went off and embedded with, with Marines in Afghanistan. When you talk to the actual, um, guys on the ground, the 23 year old kids in, in Afghanistan, how much do they believe in the mission? as either described by George W. Bush or as described by political leaders now or under Obama? I mean, are, are, are they just putting in time? Are they there when you talk to them? Do they say that they're there just to do their duty as you describe it? Or is it to defend their buddies? Or does did that democracy project, nation building project ever really trickle down to the guys in the, on the front lines? No, no. The, and I try to indicate in the book what when you're really in firefights every day and guys are getting blown up every other day, what absolutely counts are your direct leaders 
and whether they have the grit and whether they they whether they continue with with the discipline and you can sense that right away and it all gets down again to individuals and good leadership versus bad leadership makes at at the squad level at, at the tiny little levels and that's why I bring in the CIA and what they do with their teams because they mm-hmm. they 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 do a darn good job in certain ways and they're older um is that why they do a good job? Is they're just more seasoned? I mean, is, is that the key to yes, why those CIA but, but squads the, are so good? What the agency does is they recruit the best out of our Marines and special operations forces. And mm-hmm. then they come out on missions, but they're 10 years older. They've been there already and done that. Mm-hmm. So they're a very steadying influence. And I try to indicate in this case that um, they are looking for a drug lord. And they're using all kinds of new high technologies to try to find them. And at the same time, they're out there with this platoon. And the platoon gradually begins to look up to them because they're more seasoned, they're smarter, and they're just as determined. But in the end, what really keeps you going, it has to be that your your individual leaders say, we're going to do our duty. And they Mm -hmm. keep on that. Do your best. Regardless of whether you think the strategy is screwed up, do your best. You don't control the strategy. You do control your own destiny and how you behave. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, so just getting back to the policy stuff for a second. Um, you, you say it was a flawed premise from the beginning, not going in to get the Taliban or get to get Al-Qaeda, but trying to do the, the nation building and, and all of that. We're now what twenty years later. Um, what what would you like us to see us do next? Just get out, um, go back to a sort of much more targeted. I mean, I remember talking to you about this ten years ago, and you were saying, you know, the key would be just simply to hold Kabul, prevent the ability for Al Qaeda to do um, to to launch any long distance attacks and and just hold up there i mean is that still what you think is the best strategy or do you think we should just get out wholesale well i think that uh i just had an op-ed in the wall street journal about this um i think it was a mistake for president trump to pull out two thousand troops and leave another two thousand troops there mm-hmm. he, he, that he shouldn't have done that but there we are I would basically say we should keep this core that we have there who are really good at killing Taliban. We should keep them there and keep bombing them. I don't care. I don't care how long it takes because we're not getting killed. I want to get back to this whole concept that we're not getting killed. Um, But as long as we just keep the pressure on them, we don't allow we don't allow the terrorists to have a sanctuary in Afghanistan. That's the only thing I want to do. They can't. Mm -hmm. These these tribes can't get into Kabul mm-hmm. unless we pull out, unless we do what we did in Saigon. And, and then, my goodness, there'll be absolute chaos and we will be ashamed before the world. Mm-hmm. And people can say, ah, come on. Oh, oh, no. I remember what happened after Saigon. I mean, you don't want to inject huge panic. I don't care who you are. And I know that President-elect uh, Biden is going to be hearing this from, from his advisors the the costs of being defeated and humiliated in terms of our national image for ourselves and around the world will be devastating. And we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. We can continue. No one even knows what Afghanistan is there anymore. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal anymore. And we can continue what we're doing. And we're bombing them every day, the enemy. And the, the Taliban are the enemy. <laughs> yeah. And and just continue. But you know. That's the other thing I try to get into in the book, though. Somebody dies on our side. When you're out in these, when you're out there, when you make the mistake of sending all those kids out into those villages, there's a cost to that. And that, that I noticed over time was the greatest difference, Jonah, that I saw that distinguished Iraq and Afghanistan from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. When I fought in Vietnam, my unit, I had 15, 15 Marines, seven of the 15 were killed. 
we accepted death as being part of what Marines pay when they decide to become Marines. Today, death is not accepted the way it was. And that has something also to do with what I try to get into a little bit about religion and, and the values that our country has and the values that, that are brought onto the battlefield by these young Marines. And so when different people are dying in the book, I try to show the reader the confusion that goes on as the survivors try to figure out, is that all there is? Or is there something more? And I have one of the characters going all the way back to Aquinas when, when asked that question. <clears throat> and because it's a very serious question, and, and one, of the, one of the young men is killed, and his best friend is there, and he said, well, is that it? He said, you know, I used to go to church. Is there something more? And one of the CIA agents who's been through this many times said, look, none of us know. We'll never know. But we have to keep in mind that you Marines in your own hymn have that you're, you're guarding the gates to heaven because you believe in something more intuitively. And when Aquinas was, people said to Aquinas, there's, there's no God. Then he, he said, well, who made the universe? And the answer came back, well, nothing, nothing made it. And Aquinas then said, then you've just told us that nothing is another word for God because nothing made the universe. Therefore, God <laughs> made the universe. So in the end, you have to believe, and most of them believe that there really is something more, that, that we don't just die in a black hole. Now, that also, and I, I try to bring that out in the book, it, it after the after death after death, there are those moments that I've always seen with the platoons when you're there, and you know, in, as a marine and being on those battlefields, I guess on about five or six occasions I've been there as a young man is turning blue, and that's a sure sign that the exsanguination has happened and he has lost enough blood that he's about to die. Mm -hmm. Not once. Has there been anger? It, it always is, give my love to somebody as they're dying. And so there, there's, there's something more than just going out, fighting, and that's it. There, there's something deeper. And I, I try to get into that a little bit because most of, most of the troops out there, they do believe that they do believe there is a God. Um, but... Would you say that when you were serving in Vietnam, religion was a more prominent factor in soldiers' lives or in Marines' lives than um, what you've seen in Iraq and in Afghanistan? I mean, is that part of your point? Is that it's just receding? Yes. Like, yes. It's receding it, everywhere it, else, right? It, it, the answer is yes. The, the answer is that I, I don't want to get... And in, uh, in the book, I stay in the present with the, with what's going on in the story. Mm -hmm. But there is this issue. The moral fiber of our nation, does it change over time? Of course it does. It does mm -hmm. for any nation. And we're certainly not as united as we were in World War II. We're certainly not as willing to except casualties as we were in Vietnam. People claim that, that they don't believe in religion the way they used to, but those on the front lines, <laughs> that, <laughs> that begins to show up when, when, uh, when you lose somebody. They don't go to church as much, not nowhere near as much, you, but there is still that hope. There is still that hope. And it does, it does strike me that, you know, we, we, we can't go on forever believing that we can fight wars and nobody is killed. Mm -hmm. and, and we can't make a, a death a, a, a sacrament. Um, and by that, I mean, there will be another big war. I mean, that's the nature of humans. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably won't be here when that happens. But, but our country will be tested again in certain ways, and, and not just physically, I can envision that if you had any clash with China or something, 
then we'd be in a state like we are with COVID without electricity. Uh, electricity would come on and off. Um, currency, you wouldn't, you'd need money. There, nobody would be accepting credit cards. We could be challenged in a lot of different ways about our comfort to determine whether we were willing to cut a deal. Mm-hmm. Now that's far, far beyond the book. That's just sure, sure, sure. That's fine. Yeah, no, it's good. It's an interesting point. I mean, um, um, but I, you know, so I, I just it popped into my head. There's this guy, this writer. You may have may know him, Sebastian Younger. Uh, sure. And he wrote he wrote a book called Tribe. Correct. I and, read it. I know Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I gotta say, I, I really. I like that book a lot and it was very useful for me. And one of the points that he makes, I'll just sort of summarize it is that, that PTSD, which just over the course of my adult lifetime has become almost an obsession, um, uh, with the popular culture. And I, I mean, I, and I think it's a real thing. Um, I'm not trying to dismiss it, but, um, Part of his point is, is that in Israel, you don't get nearly as much PTSD, even though Israeli soldiers see some horrible things. And his argument is that in part, it's because um, there is this national consensus about what their troops are doing. Everyone served in the military so that there's much more empathy and sympathy and understanding about what troops have been through. because. Your dad was in the troop. It was in the military too, and um, the whole culture is has got a much stronger sense of national unity and natural national culture. And being in the army isn't something that just those people do. It's something more or less everybody does. And so, part of his thesis is that PTSD has more to do with in places like the United States, going from these intense, violent situations but also these intense contexts or communities of very close-knit platoons and groups, then just being left out on your own, trying to deal with the abundance and the sort of individual individualism and whatnot and the freedom of domestic life. And I was wondering, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, it does seem to me that PTSD is diagnosed a, a lot more than it used to be, which doesn't mean it didn't exist in the same numbers in the past. We just couldn't recognize it. But I always thought that that was a very interesting sort of thesis about that it has more to do with how we treat troops when they get home and less to do with how the the experience is so much worse than it was in the past or anything like that. What do you what do you make of all that? I'm going to be very careful with this one because it's almost the third rail in certain ways. You you have to choose your words carefully. It is clear to me that if you look at Saving Private Ryan and what happened on the beaches at Normandy, what happened on Iwo Jima, if we had, if that happened today and we're willing to take those casualties, then of Mm -hmm. course you could say that everyone on every beachhead had PTSD. And they came back into a society and they continued with their lives we now, we are, I have to be careful with this, but we now pay substantially money for PTSD. Now, mm-hmm. some people genuinely have problems for a long, long time, et cetera. But when you start getting up to 20% of the force or something with PTSD, and everyone knows, everyone knows that you're given money for the rest of your life. That, as solace, you're given the money. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, we, have no, to be very we have to be very careful here. You get, I mean, you're, you're over, making a generic point about you get more of what you subsidize without correct, But the war, the wars are over. And I am flabbergasted why people still have PTSD. I, I mean, in, in other words, not today, people coming down with PTSD. What, when, when they, when they're, Facing some of the the mobs, uh, some of the policemen now are reporting PTSD. Well, mm-hmm. what's going on here? I mean, I, I 
I'm going to leave it there. But in, in, my, in my novel, I don't have people with PTSD. <laughs> in my novel, it's a mystery story as to who's going to win this fight and why. And these guys are, are willing to mix it up. <laughs> if you uh, uh, just, you know, for people who don't know, if you do think that you have um, feelings, maybe not of PTSD, but of uh, disorientation or whatnot, um, it may just simply be that you're dehydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydrant. Top performers in business and sports, and some might even say the Marines, often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise or meditation, or maybe, you know, a five-mile march in full pack. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs sodium potassium magnesium and sweet sweet zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day and hydrant is backed by research the formula was developed by oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced efficient hydration there are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, just go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, promo code Dingo for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com. Promo code Dingo. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so uh, let's switch gears for just uh, just two seconds. I should have done this at the beginning. Um, and I have to say, you, and I, I mean this both as an author and as a fan of yours, uh, you are showing admirable marine discipline and mention and, and, and tying things back to your book that's hard to do on a book tour and you're doing a good <laughs> job of it um but uh uh i should have given people a little broader sense of your experience um starting with the fact that you were at the age of 16 um one of the uh, uh possibly world champion Spear fisherman, uh, in, 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 in growing up in, I always thought you grew up in Rhode Island, but I guess you grew up in Massachusetts. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you served in Vietnam in combat as you, as you mentioned. Um, and at one point you wrote a book with a guy whose nickname was E-Tool. Yes. Right. Uh, why, why don't you explain to the, the listeners why uh, uh, the general's nickname, middle name, was E-Tool? Well, uh, Major General E-Tool Smith, uh, one day when he was a lieutenant in Vietnam, he was told he had to take this hill. And it was nighttime, and he got his men online, and he said, whatever you do, just keep in line where you are. Never get out of line because we're going to be shooting all the way up the hill and they're waiting for us. And therefore, we just have to go in lockstep. And his rifle jammed and he picked up an entrenching tool and he killed two North Vietnamese with an entrenching tool as he walked up the hill. Entrenching tool is basically a it did just a shovel thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Tough guy. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I remember you telling me about him. You were, and uh, you, in the context of, uh, you were, was it Fallujah where you were an observer with, with, yeah, I was in Fallujah. Yeah. And well, we, yeah. So we, we wrote a, we, we went all the way up to Baghdad with the Marines and we wrote a book about that. And then I wrote a book about Fallujah and then I kept going back over the years. I don't know. I've made 20, 30, 40 trips, always embedding with the troops in Iraq mm -hmm. and Afghanistan. So over the course of time, I've written 10 books about Iraq and Afghanistan, Vietnam. and. So where do you come down? I know you're a 
a critic of certain counter uh, of what is it coin counter insurgency yes. yeah. theory and stuff although you were part of counter insurgency stuff in in vietnam you just did correct. it differently right correct i um, wrote a book about it called the village right and um you know where do you come down on how things worked out in iraq right i mean it's a very different story than afghanistan but not necessarily a fantastic story either. I'm just kind of curious, how, where do you score the, all of that? Well, in Iraq, um, getting back to tribes, by about 2008, I have grave risk of, I mean, going in there in the first instance and discovering they didn't have nuclear weapons and that's why we went in, mm -hmm. um, indicates that the CIA and a lot of other people were just dead wrong, but we all make mistakes. That, that was just a big mistake. But we did persuade the, the Sunni tribe who had been in charge before we went there, and we deposed Saddam Hussein and deposed the Sunni regime. The Sunni tribe finally came over to our side. And I was talking to one sheikh one day, and I said, you fought us for five years, you come over, why? He said, oh, he said, we finally decided you were the strongest tribe. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, but then, then we pulled out and, and the military did say to President Obama, sir, don't do this. You know, we, we, we're the, we're the, we're the steel rod in the concrete. If you pull us out, it's all going to fall apart. But we pulled out, it did fall apart. We went back in and had to fight ISIS a second time. And now we pulled out again. And to a certain extent, Iran has become the power behind Iraq. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be a mess, just a mess. Um, it, it won't be a strong country. It has huge economic problems. It has vast tribal problems between the Shiites and the Sunnis. Um, but it's not, it's not a major issue. It's not like China. It's mm -hmm. just, we're down to a we're down to a few thousand people. Again, we can do these things. We can stay a little bit in Iraq. We can stay a little bit in Afghanistan. It really, we're not risking too many people at all. And we're not, and the amount of money we're spending is really relatively small. And they're no longer even big stories. Mm -hmm. So they're small, they're, they were mistakes, but they're not major national mistakes. There's something we got over. Yeah, I mean, the analogy I often use when I think about this stuff is if you accidentally or even on purpose, but for whatever reason, if you stab someone in the chest with a knife and it was clearly the wrong thing to do, or it's arguably the wrong thing to do, it doesn't really matter for the purpose of the analogy. The best remedy isn't necessarily to immediately pull the knife out because yeah. <laughs> the knife is actually just keeping you from bleeding to death at that point. And, um, I'm totally open to the argument and that, in fact, I've basically written, you know, I was a big supporter of the Iraq war and I, in hindsight, I think it was a mistake, you know, um, uh, or at the very least, I think it was a mistake. It, it is a reasonable position to say it was a mistake and you can have an argument about all of that. Um, there were also some positive geostrategic things that came out of the Iraq war. So it's not, to me, it's not all cut and dry. Afghanistan, I think I'm pretty much entirely with you now. I wasn't as persuaded by you 10 years ago, but now I'm completely with you. So, uh, mea culpa, um, that we were right to go in, but we should have stayed focused on a narrow target and all that. But, um, but one of my big complaints about how people talk, particularly the Rand Paul types talk about things is they make it sound like Americans are very upset that we have troops in a lot of countries. Americans aren't upset that we have troops in a lot of countries. No. Americans are upset when Americans die, right? And they don't like to see American troops die, but no one is freaking out that we still have troops, I don't know, in Germany or Japan, you know, and um, and maybe we should get them out at some point. That's fine. But um, when I listen to Secretary Pompeo, who says that, I mean, he, he actually said earlier this year that not only will the Taliban turn on al-Qaeda, but they will fight side by side, by side with American troops against al-Qaeda. And that's just crazy, right? I mean, that's just, I mean, I mean, that's as, that's as nutty as nation building, or am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And yeah, again, getting back to my book. Yes, absolutely. 
in the novel, I try to indicate the linkages that are absolutely critical between the Taliban on the battlefield and Pakistan and Iran, because $500 million to a billion dollars a year of heroin comes out of Afghanistan, goes through Pakistan into Iran, and then up through the Balkans into Russia and Europe. And everyone, everyone's getting rich off this. And so the idea that they're going to be fighting each other, they're not going to be fighting each other. Now, they, the really religious crazies, some of the groups may fight each other a little bit, but not compared to the fact that they all want their, their piece of the pie and they all really believe that they're going to win. This is a problem over there that will continue. And that's why I think we just have to keep bombing them. I, I, Pompeo, I, I don't know what Secretary Pompeo was thinking of if he said something like that, because ordinarily I think he's a pretty bright guy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think they're trying to figure out a way to pull out. I mean, uh, that's and that was so, that was. But, but they have. I think it's over now. And as I indicated earlier, they've they've left President elect Biden with a with a real problem because. Mm -hmm. We need more troops there probably than 2,500. Basically, things are going to remain a mess in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that, that we pull out entirely. I, I don't think that'd be a wise thing to do. And we can't, we can't, we, we can't believe that the Taliban will lie. Of course they'll lie. North Vietnamese lied to us also when we said, well, we'd, you know, at the end of, supposedly at the end of the war, when we made a peace treaty with them in 1972. <laughs> I don't believe it. And so, um, but it, it's interesting, up until this like last answer, you you seem to focus everything on the on the heroin trade, which I get, or the opium trade, but the you know, the the intra if 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 the farmers and the Taliban and everybody in Afghanistan, if their sole interest is the economic rewards of drug dealing. Um, that's an argument for not helping out Al Qaeda, right? I mean, because it's, it's the last thing Colombian drug lords want to do or Mexican drug cartels want to do is help international terrorist networks because that invites destabilizing problems with the United States um, and military interventions and that kind of thing. You know, you mentioned that only some of the, the really religious crazies would would fight amongst themselves. Um, but I, I guess my point is, is that if, I mean, if Al Qaeda still believes in what Al Qaeda believes about launching terror attacks and striking down the great Satan and all of these kinds of things, then they're not necessarily all bought in on, on drug dealing. Isn't there a tension there between sort of the, the mission of, of, you know, global jihad and, and, and selling dope? The answer is yes. And now. And again, I was I was phrasing based on my book because I put my book in southern Afghanistan, not all. I, mm -hmm. I, I put it in Helmand province, which is the heart of the drug oh, area. I see. That's mm -hmm. just, you know, one part of all of Pakistan. The, mm -hmm. the basic and, I, and, and in the book, we get into it at the end because the president and the secretary of defense in, in the, the novel, The Last Platoon, they end up at the end arguing very strenuously what happens if we just pull out and will mm -hmm. it just go to the druggies or will Al-Qaeda come back in? And the CIA director gets involved and basically he says, look, the Taliban are a cancer inside the society of Afghanistan, but they're not a pandemic. <laughs> Al-Qaeda is the pandemic. And if we can, with the number of spies that we have in places like Hellman, where the book is, if we can keep it, those, those spies from, from being executed or something, and I suspect we do a pretty good job, and we keep bombing them, we can keep Al-Qaeda off balance. We don't have to give Al-Qaeda a sanctuary anyway, anywhere, as long as we're willing to bomb. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened at the end of the Vietnam War that most people don't know is that our Congress passed a law saying we could no longer bomb in Southeast Asia. And the minute the North Vietnamese heard that, they couldn't believe it at first. But when they said, 
the Congress has said, no matter what we do, you won't bomb us. <laughs> then it was, then they were off the leash. Mm-hmm. If we, if for gosh sakes, I can't imagine that we would have any kind of negotiation where we would agree to cease our bombing. That would be crazy. And as long as we can bomb, we can prevent Al Qaeda from using Afghanistan as a big sanctuary against us. All right. So, so staying on Vietnam for just two seconds, do you think the Vietnam War was a winnable war? Oh, absolutely. The Vietnam War was a winnable war. By, yeah. by 1970, when I, I was over there for many years. Mm-hmm. By 1970, you could drive across most of Vietnam without fear of being shot. Um, the North Vietnamese were up in the hills. The North Vietnamese conquered South Vietnam, not the Viet Cong, not the guerrillas. They were gone. It was a straight up war at the end. And China and Russia kept supplying their client, North Vietnam. And we did not supply the South Vietnamese army and we stopped all our bombing. So could we have won that war? Win meaning South Vietnam would not have gone under? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. But we were so tired and the, the Congress was so angry at the president, President Nixon, and then President Ford didn't have that much power because he was just put in for a little bit of time. The Congress just said, the heck with it. That's what really yeah. happened. And so in that sense, so that, so because people love to compare, well, up until fairly recently, they love to compare every war with Vietnam. And if you were the New York Times, if you were, you know, if you were uh, Johnny Apple or one of these people, five minutes into the fighting, it's a Vietnam-like quagmire. That was her favorite word and all the rest. Um, do you think America has it in it to actually, maybe not in a World War Three situation where it does seem like an existential thing, but do you think it actually has it in it to 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 win wars in the way that they actually need to be won anymore? The answer is, the answer is yes. Um, Look, we're in a war against the Islamist terrorists. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. And we're winning that war. I mean, we are winning that war. And eventually, eventually is Islamist terrorism will peter out. So the answer is, yes, we can fight long-term wars. We just have to have the common sense to ensure that the parameters of how you're fighting are such that it carries over from one president to another. Mm-hmm. What, what I felt that the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did not do, and what I felt the CIA did not do in either the cases of Iraq or Afghanistan, was to go to the president right at the start and say, sir... The, the goal of nation building that you are about to undertake can be done, but it requires 70 years. Mm-hmm. It requires as much time as it took us in South Korea, which was an absolute mess in, ni- in 1953, and they were still having gunfights in their own White House in 1978. It'll probably take, sir, 50, 50 to 70 years, and you can do it. Mm-hmm. And then... Somebody would, the president would have had to think, okay, well, 50 to 70 years, hmm, can, <laughs> I, am, I am handing, is my successor going to continue with this plan? Is mm-hmm. the, and then you have to go to the Congress. I think you had to go to Congress and say, this is, going, this is 70 years. Do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. You, you, we never did that. And that's yeah. the big problem that I, I, that's risk assessment in my judgment no, Jonah just wasn't done the right way at the top. Mm-hmm. And, but and let me get back to my book. Absolutely. Just absolutely. Go for it. Go okay. for it. Sure, sure. So in the last platoon, I mean, I, I, none of this philosophy stuff is in the book. The, 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 <laughs> book I, the book, I keep it I keep it at the level where you're, where you're fighting. You're trying to figure out what the other guy's doing. You know that this is going to end. Uh, this is going to be tough at the end, really tough. And then I try to indicate when you're in those kinds of situations, what do you take away from it all? And and I came back to, I hate to say this, but T.S. Eliot, I mean, when it, the, the great line when he said, the end of our exploring for each of us, our journey through life is to arrive where we started and know the place, know yourself for the first time. 
That is, what do you gain by having gone in the CIA? What do you gain by having served in the Air Force or the Army or the Navy or the Marine Corps and then going on with your life? I hope that you gain a knowledge that you did your duty and you're a better man or woman for having done that and you have learned something about yourself and your own character. And and I believe that. I believe that sincerely, that, mm-hmm. that those who have served, those who have served, 95% of them are very proud of the fact that they served, regardless of how the strategy worked out. Sure. You can be in a, a terrible war and do your duty the right way, and you can keep those two things separate. I mean, mm-hmm. I do. I can criticize the strategy, but I can still say that I was proud to, to as a Marine, I was proud to have fought, and, and I make no apologies for it. Um, so did you have, when you, when you served, did you have any of those kinds of moments? I, I can't remember. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of your stories, but were you ever gravely wounded? Did you ever think you were going to die? <laughs> I was, bang- I was bang- the answer is I was banged around. I, uh-huh. I was saved in, I was saved in the DMZ, force recon. There were five of us and we were trapped and we were going under and, uh, this, this tiny little plane came over and said, get your heads down and uh, fired a couple of puny rockets. And there were about 50 or 100 North Viets coming up the hill at us. And I thought, oh, great, you didn't help me. And that's all I remember for a while. The <laughs> rockets were, were shot at the enemy because there was an aircraft above us, an F-8 that was going up to Bombson Bridge, and he had two 2,000-pound bombs, and he dropped them right dead in front of us. And it, 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 you had no choice. We were going to go under one way or the other. Um, that was the closest I came being. <laughs> and yeah. boy, he took care of those North Fiets. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't have any, uh, I'm just saying you didn't have a Thomas Aquinas moment or St. Augustine. No, 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 in, no, no, in, no, 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 <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing remotely. You, you just say, thank God. <laughs> I meant something, I meant something that when you finish, I hope that when somebody's finished this novel, they'll they'll think for a minute and say, "Wow, you go through all that, and the the protagonist, this Captain Cruz. If you're Cruz at the end, what have you learned from all this?" And that's what I meant by the Elliot quote: that you have time to reflect later, not at the mm-hmm. time, but much later. Mm-hmm. Sort of like I, I, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but the scene that kills me every time in Saving Private Ryan is when the Private Ryan, fifty years later, as an old man with his family and grandkids and whatnot, turns to his wife and says, "Tell me I've been a good man," because that the the previous scene is Tom Hanks telling him, "You need to deserve yeah, yeah. what you did there," and and to me that is like one of the most emotionally brutal scenes in all of movies is, is, is that kind of, re, you know, reflection and retrospection that you get. Um, and, you know, one of the things it does is it brings out the importance of actually caring about things larger than yourself and the community that you live in. And that's why I want to talk about donors trust. Mark and Carrie have long managed their charitable giving through a national donor advised fund. But in recent months, that provider went from being a neutral platform to questioning some of their grants to conservative causes, even turning down a gift to one. They looked into a local community foundation, but it didn't seem much better. Fortunately, some online searching led Mark and Carrie to, to a provider that reflects their values, Donors Trust. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with a certain community in mind a community that believes in limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise as, a, as bedrock values worth fighting for. With Donors Trust's unique focus on this community, it can offer more personalized, nimble service than larger, more bureaucratic providers. As Mark reports, none of the other providers have the ideological element and protection that Donors Trust has. Already have a donor advice fund? Did you know you can easily roll that fund over to Donors Trust? You can, and doing so, you'll gain a partner that understands your values. The team from Donors Trust works with donors of all levels of giving to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your goals. 
Some of you might be considering a donor-advised fund, and why not? It's the simple, tax-friendly, secure way to give. So why not work with the fund that matches your values? So if you're a conservative or a libertarian or a believer in sort of traditional classical liberalism, that's Donors Trust. Get your free donor prospectus to see how Donors Trust can be your principal charitable partner at DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So did you, do you, I mean, this is your first novel, right? No, this is my second novel. I wrote, oh, I didn't I, realize. I apologize. Yeah, I, thought I, this... I wrote, I wrote uh, another one called The Pepper Dogs, which was the story of um, five Marines and Force Recon who, in, in the Balkans during that war, uh, a Marine is captured and they, they go to try to find him and what happens to them on their journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same sort of thing I tried to do in the last platoon. You, you, in fact, I took some of the CIA characters from the first book and brought them into this book as well. Turn them loose again. What are they going to do in this situation? Um, which do you prefer doing, novels or, or you know, straight reportage or an, an analysis stuff? Um, prefer now. I'm, I'm fortunate. Um, all the kids are grown and doing well, and the, and the grandkids are terrific. That I can take the time to do what I want. The nonfiction, if you're in the military field, outsells fiction ten or twenty to one. So <laughs> logically, if you're trying to <laughs> pay some bills, you write nonfiction. the The average person reading fiction is. Uh, a woman between the ages of 45 and, and 65 or so, um, the, the last platoon isn't the kind of book that they instinctively will, will try to read, but <laughs> I, I hope a lot of veterans uh, will, will read it because it's, 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 it's raw. It's about the violence and it's about trying to find your way and determine when you're being too pigheaded or when you're really looking out for yourself and not looking out for the troops. And when you're thinking maybe this mission isn't worth it. And do you think you have another novel in you? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yes. You figured out what it's about. Taking, yet? Taking, taking some of the same characters and moving on. Right. Well, that's good. I mean, you're building a franchise, you know, it's like uh, my friend, Brad, <laughs> Thor, Brad Thor, he is, you know, these returning characters and, and that's it. Once you get the audience hooked, it, They'll, they'll, they keep moving on, or they stick with you, I should say. Um, so let me ask you just a little bit. I mean, we've steered clear of domestic politics and all that, but um, uh, what do you, in particular, what do you make of this, you know, the firing of Esper and the, the shuffling um, at the Pentagon? Is that... From I mean, you know people at the Pentagon. You know this stuff. Part of that is clearly spite against Esper, but is there, is it, is it really just about Afghanistan, or what? 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 What is your interpretation of it? My interpretation is that President Trump, on the one hand, uh, had some sensible policies, and certainly the economy was humming along. On the other hand, we all. We all recognize that his personality is narcissistic and that he holds grudges and he is highly impetuous. Um, I think he may have actually been reelected if if he didn't show the nature of his personality in in the first debate against uh, President-elect Biden, where where Mr. Trump was just so nasty that he turned off a lot of people uh, um, manifestly manifestly uh, well i like the word solipsism but uh, more than narcissism but mm-hmm. solipsism means that you 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 believe that the entire world kind of revolves around you 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 can't you you lack empathy yeah. Um, so I, I think I use egocentrism for the same reason. You know, it's it's yes, you can't, that, that sort of that sort of thing. 
Doesn't yeah. mean that you don't have good policies. Ironically, many of the policies were good, but the personality clearly, clearly was, clearly was why he was not reelected. Um, I've often, you know, usually this stuff comes would come from the left, and I'm and I always thought it was absurd. Um, but the the you know the the worry that the military would somehow intervene in political matters and and you know um just always struck me as insane the way that the culture of the military is so the the civilian control of the military is is such a bedrock belief and i think that the the brass has basically handled things pretty well but i got to say in the last few days the fact that 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 Michael Flynn could sign the documents calling for martial law. Um, that some some of the stuff that he and uh, this retired General McInerney have said, it, it it makes me rethink that maybe I you know I have too much confidence in in some of the military because I would just think you couldn't come out of that culture and ever think that's a good idea for you to say that kind of stuff. Um, how do you put? Where do you put the current state of civilian military relations and and did Trump do much damage to it, or was it just all just shouting and you know and op ed screaming, but nothing really substantial? I believe the latter. I believe yeah. that uh, there was no damage done. Uh, basically, the the military has its own ethos, and it's a very solid ethos about uh, staying out of politics. Period. If anything, now that I reflect on it, even for a second. This President Trump probably was a was a lesson to them why they have to do that. I, I mean, yeah. I suspect it. I suspect at West Point, Annapolis, et cetera, ten or twenty years from now, you're, you're going to see courses on that on both sides. Though, Jonah, mm-hmm. look, um, I saw one advertisement for for President Elect Biden where he said twenty two four stars had endorsed him. Mm-hmm. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. I I don't think that generals, once they retire, should be get involved in politics on either side because at some point, people around any president are going to begin to say, well, gee, the minute this guy walks out the door, he's going to throw a stone at me or something. And so mm-hmm. they'll begin to shy away because they don't think that the military is apolitical. So I think the military as a as a group, especially the general officer corps, they should have a hey fellas, let's let's all talk a little bit more about what we're doing because it's not helping it's not helping the idea that we have to be apolitical. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be apolitical, don't go endorsing a president. I don't care whether he's Democrat or Republican. Stay out of politics. Um so what do you do about cases like Eisenhower? I mean, well, no, no. With, with I was about to say, with with the huge exception that if you want to run for office yourself, go ahead, mm-hmm. because yeah. then you're in the arena, right? But but don't be on the sidelines and then use the word general to indicate yeah. that others should listen to you because you're endorsing somebody else. If you want to do it and say I'm Joe Smith, go ahead, but don't say I'm General Joe Smith. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very certainly as a rule of thumb we should err on the side of the military just staying out of all of this stuff, you know, and that's what I, that's what yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that entirely. All right. Well, uh, my friend, uh, Bing West, um, at some point I, I was going to ask you to tell the story, but it's too long a story. It requires too much setup of the guy that you went spearfishing with, with the great white shark, but we'll just have oh, to no, go. No. He, he he was in the he was director of the CIA he was director of the CIA special activities group and so he is well you have to be very careful when you're writing a novel but obviously uh-huh. there are composite characters in the novel and uh, this is one of the composite characters that are in there in this story I try to draw on sixty years of knowing the military and the agency and war fighting and and take what I've seen the good and the bad. And put them all out there. Mm-hmm. I, I have had a, a few generals who read it say, "You know, we're not really like that." Well, it was. It <laughs> reminds me of uh, Herman Welk's the, the Kane Mutiny. After uh-huh. he had read that that 
they asked Admiral King after the war what he thought about the novel. And he said, he reflected for a minute and he said, well, he said, in all my time in the Navy, at one point or another, I met every one of those sons of bitches, but not all on the same ship at the same time. <laughs> so I, I try to make I try to make the novel The Last Platoon very lively from from the first page to the end page. I believe it. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to diving into it. I got some vacation time in Hawaii coming up, and I'm bringing it with me. And oh, are you going uh, out with some of the politicians who go to Hawaii for their vacations? No, I am not. I have, uh, as you know, my my lovely bride Jessica is from Alaska. Yeah, yeah. And Hawaii is the closest warm beach to Alaska, and they have a family house out there in Hawaii. And so we're uh, gonna I'm gonna stay away from Gavin Newsom and right. just uh, smoke yeah. cigars maybe in a hammock. Wave, maybe, maybe you can wave to all of them when you get out there. Hi, Gavin. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bing West. The book is The Last Platoon, and delighted to have you on. And uh, and you know, thank you for your service too. I, don't say that to enough guys like you. So thank you. Ah, my honor. Thank you, Jonah. Okay. Um, I forgot to ask Bing in part because we had so many technological errors and problems at the beginning, um, trying to set this thing up that I didn't want to confuse things even more by asking him to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. So you're just going to have to live craving the sound of his raspy chowder headish voice saying, no, you won't. This is a podcast. Um, but I, again, I love Bing. It was great to have him on. Um, I was giving him a hard time about his discipline about staying focused on the book, but he is a Marine after all. And, uh, you know, he sticks with the, uh, his code and his, in his battle plan. And, uh, I don't blame him. Look, we're all, we're all on book tours. That's, that's what you got to do. I mean, um, and even Tevi Troy could learn a thing or two from him. But uh, it was great to have him on. I hope to have him back. And maybe on the Friday solo episode, I will tell the story about the spearfishing that I was referencing, which I guess gets, um, in The Great White Shark, which I guess gets some sort of fictionalized treatment in the book, because I'm not sure he understood, Bing understood where I was getting at with that, but I didn't want to correct him. Um, so now I really got to read the book to see. But um, anyway... Uh, thanks again to Bing West. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, especially to the people who are paid members of the dispatch community. Uh, we really appreciate it. We're closing out our first official year and, um, you know, the, the numbers are great, but they can be better. And, uh, we owe all the success that we have, uh, to the people who are part of the dispatch community and our paid members. And, um, we really appreciate it. Everyone stay safe. A vaccine is on its way, and I will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> sure.